Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Mornings Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, a University of Toronto business history professor takes a look at the Rogers fight and other legendary Canadian family feuds. We'll take a look at the uneven outcomes of the impact of COVID-19 on the Canadian workforce with the help of a new survey. And automotive journalist Jeremy Cato has a look at Rivian, the new car maker on the block with a market value already greater than Ford and General Motors. So let's get started. With producers Tim French and Jonathan Chung, good morning. I'm Sterling Fox. Nice to have you along with us this Saturday morning. Lots and lots of wind on the way. 12 hours from now, it'll be a very different city of Vancouver. Everything you own needs to be fastened down. It's going to be quite a night tonight into tomorrow. We turn our attention to a a story that played out very publicly right here in Vancouver. In fact, just a block or two from CKNW at the Vancouver Courthouse in Vancouver Supreme Court. And of course, we're talking Talking about the Rogers family feud, which saw the son, Ed, Edward Rogers, in a, a very public disagreement with his mother and two sisters. Uh, this leading to an article at theconversation.com by our next guest entitled, From Vincent Massey to Ed Rogers, Canada's History of Family Firm Feuds Rivals Succession. Aha! That HBO series that is quite compelling. Our guest is Dimitri Anastak. He is a professor and chair in Canadian business history at the University of Toronto. Professor Anastakis, Dimitri, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here. It's great to have you with us. Remind us of, uh, first of all, we were fortunate in a very strange way here in Vancouver to be really almost in the courtroom as the Rogers family feud played out over the last few weeks. Uh, The company was, for some mysterious reason, incorporated here in British Columbia, Dimitri, rather than Toronto, which is its base of operations. Why did they do that? I think the reason is because the rules around how it could be incorporated and how it could use the rules around board decisions was exactly why they wanted to be in British Columbia. Because I think in Ontario, if you incorporate there, you have to have a board meeting if you want to change who your membership is. Whereas in, in British Columbia, it only requires a resolution, which allowed Ed Rogers to basically fire uh, members of the board and replace them with the people that he wanted to replace them with without having a shareholders meeting. And that's why the court decision happened. And uh, that's why the judge decided in favor of Ed over the wishes of his mother and his sisters. It's a pretty public, bitter feud where they go straight at it uh, against each other in court. And he ended up winning. It has been quite a remarkable family feud from the point of view of, of its public nature, Dimitri. We've, we've not missed a beat for several weeks. It's been resolved now, except maybe not. Because all of this has taken place while the Rogers company is attempting to buy a competitor, Shaw, for $16 billion. What is the likelihood of that deal continuing to go forward? I think it still goes forward. And and the reason I think this goes forward is for a couple of things. First, uh, the family that they're they're getting this deal from, the Shaw family, is also uh, similar to the Rogers family, a family that controls its firm through a dual-class share structure. And they want this to happen. The other thing is, I, I don't think, even though there's been all this kind of uh, bitter family feud and courtroom drama, that the regulators, the uh, Canadian government, uh, will stop this because, you know, there's a pretty compelling reason for this to happen from the perspective of the owners. They want it to happen. Now, there might be some doubts, but I think the momentum is going through. If Jim Shaw had said, hey, all these problems over at the Rogers family give us cold feet, maybe, but he's actually stood strongly by them and they're still uh, going forward on the deal. Now, Now, the other thing I'll say, Sterling, is we wouldn't have known any of this. We wouldn't have known any of this unless somebody, uh, uh, only because somebody leaked all this information and probably somebody within the family leaking all this information. So we've got these front row seats and we were watching this and watching this kind of a slow motion car crash happen mm-hmm. only because somebody's been telling us about it. And, and now we actually see the end game. And, you know, Ed looks like he's going to get control I don't think it's going to jeopardize the Shaw deal, but it is going to give a lot of people across the country uh, big questions around 
uh, Rogers itself, around the dual class share structure that exists, and about Ed's judgment too. I mean, why would he? Why would he fire his CEO in the middle of this massive deal? Exactly. It's, it seems kind of silly to me. Well, you know, that's that's perplexing to say the very least. Uh, with, uh, with with all of this, and we did forget. You know, you do forget in the course of the Rogers, uh, you know, intent to buy Shaw. You have to take in a second. Go right, another super wealthy, near legendary Canadian family. Absolutely, and and you know, uh, the business history landscape is littered with these kinds of people, often getting into fights. I mean, the Shaw family has been pretty much uh, good on that, but Rogers has had this big brouhaha. Well, the families that owned Canadian Tire, uh, own Canadian Tire, have had big blowouts. Uh, Magna, Tim Hortons even had a big blowout. So there's been all kinds of companies, uh, uh, the McCain's and the Molson's, that are household names. Absolutely. That have had bitter family feuds over time. And a lot of it ends up in court, and a lot of it ends up happening almost exactly what's, what, what's going to happen here, probably, which is... One part of the family is going to go away a little bit unhappy, but they're going to go away and the business is going to continue on. So even though uh, Rogers is going to face a, a, a bit of a hit on the public relations side now, maybe in two years, Canadians have forgotten about this. And if, if Rogers share price increases and, and the deal goes through, maybe people look back and say, despite all the big brouhaha and the family feud, that Ed was right and he did pretty well. Because after all, in our capitalist system, money talks, and the bottom line would have been served. Indeed. And uh, what's the share? How has the share price been affected by this family feud? Given the very public nature of it, there was a bit of volatility through the trial phase. Yes, there was. And the shares went down a little bit. And, and Rogers has underperformed compared to TELUS and BCE, its competitors. That's one of the reasons that Ed decided to pull the trigger in the way that he did. He said, hey, look, we're behind, and by changing uh, the leadership in the C-suite, I can do this now. Uh, I don't know, though. I mean, uh, Rogers doesn't have the best track record in terms of its public relations. I mean, uh, a lot of people will remember negative option billing, which uh, Rogers did in the 1990s. And boy, did that cause a lot of problems. You know, I think they can get by this like they eventually got by that. But it, it did cost them some customers. It cost them a lot of public goodwill. And it, it, it really did reinforce this idea that Canadians really don't like their telecom companies. They really don't like their telcos because, you know, they, they feel like, oh, geez, you know, even if I don't like what Rogers is doing, if I want to switch to another one, it's a big pain. Right. And I'm not going to get any better service anyway. So it shows the problem in the industry as well. Well, it, it's absolutely true. And it, particularly because no matter whether you change companies or not, you're still going to be paying the highest rates on the planet here in Canada. Aren't we lucky? Yeah. And that's part of the problem. I mean, you've got these families controlling these firms. You've got this very, very tight oligopoly. And, you know, I've talked in the last few weeks to a number of Rogers customers. I said, well, is this enough to really upset you that you're going to leave Rogers? And they say, well, yeah, yeah, I would love to, but it's such a pain to move. And (laughs) it's not like I'm going to get any better. So Ed really has people kind of over a barrel here and he's got customers over a barrel and, and the telcos do. And don't forget, there's there's about 10 million Canadians who get their wireless or their cable or their internet from Rogers. Yes. So it's a pretty important company. And it's a lot different than, you know, uh, Magna, the, the Stronics having a big fight. I mean, mm-hmm. who cares about, but when you're paying uh, Rogers every month, $250 or whatever it is for all your services, and you need them so desperately to make sure that you're, you're, you can work from home or you can do school from home, they're almost like a, a, a strategic, sensitive uh, company for you. So you've got skin in the game here in a way that you don't with a lot of these other family feuds, which is why it generated so much interest, because so many people are directly affected by these decisions in terms of their everyday work. Our little family feud background music as we come back to our conversation with Dr. Dimitri Anastakis, the Wilson Curry Chair in Canadian Business History at the University of Toronto, who's written a piece uh, this week at the conversation entitled From Vincent Massey to Ed Rogers, Canada's History of Family Firm Feuds, Rivals Succession, and Boy Succession, Dimitri, is a big, big hit. People, you, you talk about, uh, you would talk about describing the Rogers trial proceedings here in Vancouver 
Vancouver over the past few weeks as a slow-motion car wreck. People are attracted to stuff like that, and that succession show on HBO is just massive hit. It really is, and it's also about a telco family and a media company. I mean, it's kind of about the, the, the Murdochs in a weird way. But it, it's it's not just a slow-motion car wreck. It's a slow-motion car wreck of rich people. Yes. Uh, rich people and powerful people who we all kind of feel like we know a little bit because we take part in their products. I mean, everybody knows Rogers in Canada. Everybody has a kind of idea about Rogers. So to be able to kind of gaze into the inner workings of the family and realize, you know, Ed Rogers took his mother, who's 82 years old, 82 years old and his two sisters to court yep. over this, and that they had this huge blowout in a couple of board meetings. I mean, can you imagine what Christmas dinner is going to be like at the <laughs> Rogers household? <laughs> I can't imagine Christmas dinner taking place at all, to be perfectly honest with you. To I don't me, think so. I, I don't go, think so either. I want to go back to this little slice of Canadiana that you provided in the article. Let me just quote quickly. In 1925, Vincent Massey, one of the wealthiest in families, did something that Ed Rogers today would find unthinkable. He quit. He was the fourth generation heir to his family's Massey-Harris Farm Equipment Company, on the way at that point to becoming a, our first global firm, Vincent Massey decided, no, I'm not about tractors. I want to be in public service and philanthropy. He went on later, after a career in the military, to become Governor General of Canada. You say that in realizing his founding family needed to cut its ties with their namesake firm, Vincent Massey set an example, Dimitri, that Rogers, heir to his own family's giant fortune, might consider emulating. Why? Well, you know what? There is a pattern here of incredibly wealthy people and families walking away when they realize, you know, it's the third or fourth generation, and maybe I'm not up for it, right. or maybe I'm not interested in it, and maybe, uh, you know, it's not the company I built. I mean, this is a thing that people continually forget. Ed Rogers is Ted's son, mm-hmm. and Ted was a brilliant, innovative, entrepreneurial, amazing business person. He built that company. Ed didn't build that company. It's not really his company. It's his dad's company. Yep. So, you know, it, it's not that he's an imposter. It's, it's his family firm, for sure. They own it. But it's not like he also built it from scratch. And, and uh, Vincent Massey realized this. You know, it was his grandfather who had really done it. And then he said, I'm going to go in a different direction. And he was in, an, in a position where he could actually could control the firm. He was president of the Massey Corporation, right. the Massey Company at that time. Where Ed... Uh, you know, Ted was pretty uncertain about Ed's abilities as a manager, which is one of the reasons that he never became CEO while Ted was alive. And there's a reason why he's the chair of the trust that controls the family shares, because if you're chair of the trust that controls the family shares, you specifically cannot be the CEO. Ah. And Ted tried to box his son in a little bit that way to make sure that he never got the big chair. But this is a way that Ed has been able to work around that. Now, to his credit, Vincent Massey didn't want that kind of power. He wanted to do other things, and it was a lot riskier to say, oh, I'm going to go to this other stuff. Sure. But to, to Canada's benefit, he ended up becoming, like you said before the break, Sterling, uh, Canada's first governor general. He launched the uh, Massey Commission, which was so important for the arts and education and museums across the country. He was an incredibly important Canadian figure in the post-war period. And a lot of people who are really wealthy do this. They move out. Uh, they move off their company. I mean, Bill Gates is a great example. Bill Gates has pretty much relinquished most control over, uh, all control over Microsoft. That's right. He's got shares, but he, he uses his money and his wealth and his power for other things. He doesn't want to control things anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Edge should do this necessarily, but I'm saying there's an example of somebody who did do it, and it was actually beneficial because after Vincent Massey left Massey, uh, for the next 50 years, that company did extraordinarily well. Uh, it was managed by other people who had more ideas about how to advance the company, more so than Massey would have had. Sure. And eventually it did collapse in the 1980s. But for about 40 or 50 years, it was the number one Canadian global multinational, really, uh, for manufacturing. It was as big as RIM was at its height. It was as big as Bombardier was at its height. Uh, So, you know, it was a really good success story and a a story about a, a guy's willingness to walk away, which I think is really instructive.
Still, still quite a remarkable story. And, and speaking of family, said you were, Dimitri, moments ago that just weren't up for it. The best example I can think of in my lifetime is the Eaton family. Timothy Eaton built that retail uh, thing into a, an absolute monolith. And the, the generation with George and the others came along and they just did want nothing to do with it. And the company literally disintegrated before our eyes. Yeah, it, that's such a, a sad story because like the Masseys, the Eatons were really kind of like Canada's royal family. I mean, at one point in the 1950s, the Eatons controlled about 50% of the retail market in Canada, which yeah. is amazing. But, you know, they never took outside advice. They never really brought in outside uh, 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 managers. They wanted to do it themselves. And by the time they got to the 90s, they were, they were a, a fraction of what they were in terms of market share. And the company, which so many Canadians loved, uh, just like you said, completely fell apart. That's an example of a family that doesn't know when to let go. I'll give you one other great example. Very quickly, of, if you could. Of a, of a, yeah, so the Bronfmans, you know, Edgar Bronfman Jr. took the Seagram's family uh, and the Seagram's fortune and basically destroyed it by trying to build uh, Vivendi Universal, this media company. And that was a complete disaster. He was a third-generation who really kind of screwed things up. Uh, yes, overextending is also a, a, mark, a marker for uh, trouble down the road. Dimitri Anastakis, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's a great article at The Conversation, and you, sir, are a terrific guest. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Sterling. That was great. With Tim French and Jonathan Tung, good morning. I'm Sterling Fox. Nice to have you with us this Saturday morning. It's, uh, well, it's not raining yet, and there's a blower on the way tonight, and in tomorrow morning will be a very different Vancouver Sunday morning. Today, we're taking a look, or this the next half hour, we're going to take a look at work. And, well, check this statistic out. Some 4.4 million workers, or 3% of the total workforce, quit their jobs in the United States last month. So this is a trend among American workers who are reevaluating their work situation and life following the shock of the pandemic. Now, up here in Canada, new research by the Canadian Workplace Culture Index talks about differences and impacts of COVID-19 on the labor market. Here to talk about it is Camp Edwards. Mr. Edwards is Managing Director for the Workplace Culture Index, joining us from Vancouver. Camp Edwards, good morning and welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Kemp. Tell us, first of all, about the Canadian Workplace Culture Index. Yeah, thank you so much, Sterling. Uh, we, look, we were looking to create a method for organizations to certify their workplace culture against a uniquely Canadian benchmark. So we, um, we surveyed uh, thousands of Canadians to establish what the average Canadian thought about workplace culture. Um, and that revealed a lot of interesting insights about loyalty, about different sectors, different age groups, how they're impacted by COVID, um, and how they see workplace culture in Canada. Interesting stuff. Now, also joining the conversation right now is Jonathan Narvi, who is the CEO of the MindMeld PR agency. And it says right on their website, the MindMeld PR agency gets media coverage for tech companies across North America. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning to you. It's great to have you with us. You talk about, uh, in, in the article you wrote uh, for the Daily Hive uh, earlier this week, you talked about the great resignation. That number, over well over 4 million American workers walked off the job in the month of September alone. That is not being reproduced in such dramatic numbers here in Canada, is it? No, no. Well, that's, that's what the numbers are saying uh, this is for now a, a an American phenomenon but you know certainly co- the, the effect of COVID lockdowns um, has has certainly impacted uh, the work for, workforce here which the uh, the uh, culture index survey gets into. Indeed. So we've been talking about this, both of you, we've been talking about this now for many months. This whole thing uh, basically headlined the great resignation. And it's all about, because in the same breath, by the way, as the 4.4 million American workers walked off the job, uh, there were 10.4 million jobs available across the United States at that time. That's a pretty telling indicator of why it's so easy to walk away from one job, because another one opened right across the street. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say, um, you know, what is the cause, actually, because, you know, people are walking away from the job. Some are not going back into the job market. Right. The, uh, and, you know, this is probably, 
at least in part to do with government policy. So uh, in the U.S. and Canada, we have different systems, but uh, certainly there have been uh, supports, payments for people who are not working. Mm-hmm. Well, this makes it easier to walk away from a job knowing that uh, the government can pick up the tab. But absolutely, uh, you know, the, the uh, American economy uh, has lots of openings available mm-hmm. for people who are willing to work. So, um, you know, for people who are seeking out uh, better opportunities, you know, kudos to them. Kemp, let's talk about this survey that you did recently. You talked to at least a thousand people right across Canada, and you were looking for outcomes from COVID-19 and the impact of the pandemic on individual workers across Canada. We all know, Kemp, the sectors of the economy that have been hammered the hardest, hospitality, tourism, all mm-hmm. of that sort of So we know about the sectors, but we don't talk a lot about the workers in those sectors. Tell us more, please. Yeah, I think that was where some of the most surprising results came out. And they really reflect the nature of the work that some members of our our, our country um, are involved in. What we saw was um, BIPOC Canadians were three times more likely to have lost their jobs as a result of COVID than white Canadians. Uh, we also found that those under 25 were seven times more likely to have lost their job as a result of COVID than those that are over 35. Mm-hmm. Um, and those kind of results really reflect the nature of the employment situation of those types of Canadians. Um, you know, it, very unfortunate. Really. You, you talked and uh, earlier, Kemp, about uh, surveying all of these attitudes and so on, and you did mention the word loyalty. So mm-hmm. let, let's talk a little bit about how in 2021, the fall of 2021, how mm-hmm. loyal employees feel in general about their employers these days? Yeah, it was pretty um, striking, the findings there. And what we found was that three in five or 60% of Canadians who uh, responded told us that they would leave their current position for a 10% raise to do the same job at another company. Okay. Um, And so we also measured workplace satisfaction, employee connection, how companies care. And we found that all of those scores were much higher across the board as a benchmark than loyalty. We also found that um, older employees um, were much more loyal. Uh, We also, interestingly enough, organizations with 500 employees or more reported higher levels of loyalty than any other sized organization. And I think that was something that really surprised us. Is that to make that have to do with the fact that it's a large enough outfit, Kemp, that uh, they've got a good benefits program and and uh, pensions and maybe stock options, those sorts of things that only larger companies can manage? I think that's a great insight and, and definitely something that we see as we look at loyalty across different sectors as well. So, you know, the services and consulting sector, uh, you know, much higher, higher loyalty. On the other end of the spectrum, you do have the food and beverage sector. Yeah. Jonathan Nervi, I'm curious what your assessment of what working from home has done over the last 18 months to the Canadian labor market. Not only the marketplace, Jonathan, but the psyche of the Canadian worker, particularly those who have come quite around to working from home and who are also saying, if I can't work from home when the company orders us all back, I'm going to leave. This is such a great question. Uh, thanks for asking. The, yeah, the switch to remote working, I, I know it has impacted us internally. We used to have an office. Now we run our agency completely remotely. Uh, many agencies have done the same. Mm. Uh, but not every company can do that. Uh, there are still companies that actually produce physical goods. Uh, there are companies, you know, restaurants, uh, those that haven't been able to adapt. Well, I mean, they still need kitchens anyway. Sure. Uh, so... Uh, you know, for some companies that have had the option of adapting and probably should have uh, switched to remote to uh, save costs on real estate years ago, uh, it's been actually a boon to their bottom line. But for other companies that just are in industries that it just doesn't make sense as an efficient uh, way to run their company, uh, they, they've been struggling. So, uh, you know, this it, it has impacted industries unevenly. Yes. Uh, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I wish that uh, 
you know, it just wasn't the case. Do you foresee a considerable amount of movement as, as companies? I know our company, for example, is looking at uh, workplace returns very gradually. We're maybe looking at January with a little bit of luck, fingers crossed. That's sort of where we're at. Most companies are approximately the same way. We'd like to get everybody back, but out of an abundance of caution, we're not there yet. But there will be a time when it's time to go back to the shop. And some people just aren't going to go. Well, absolutely, and and some uh, for some companies it'll make make sense to go back for uh, reasons of say uh, you know Im- improving the workplace culture. Some you know people are social creatures, so they they like to to work together uh, in in the same physical place. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, for some lines of work, yeah, you, you know, if you're in the tech sector, you can probably code from home. True. For us, we can, we can uh, you know, do our, our marketing and PR work from home. Kemp, did you want to yeah. jump in on this one as well? Yeah, I think you're definitely, you're already seeing it, right? If, if we look at the sectors where they're already going back to work, you think of the food and beverage and the hospitality right. sector in particular, where, you know, they have to be, people are saying, no, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I'm not ready to go back to work. And so you're seeing a challenging employment environment for employers in that space. You see it in uh, the sectors where we currently have mandates and how, you know, there, there's, there are gaps. We look to the United States and the airline sector and a lot of the talk there is the airline problems are a result of vaccine mandates and their impact on people, you know, coming to, coming to work. And so I think we see it already in other sectors. And when we think about the traditional office sector, we're going to see it there. Um, we, one of the things we learned in our research was that uh, Canadians uh, have different work, work, work styles across the country. In BC, Alberta, Atlantic, Canada, uh, the prairies, we see a lot less people who said that they are now working from home, having previously been in the office due to COVID. While in Ontario and Quebec, those numbers were much higher. Uh-huh. And so I think we just, in Canada, we have a unique um, employment environment where there is, to, uh, to Jonathan's point, a lot of jobs that just can't be done uh, remotely. Sterling Fox with you on this 7 degrees Saturday morning. It is 7.48. We're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on Canada's labour market with Jonathan Narvey of the MindMeld PR Agency and Kemp Edwards, Managing Director of the Workplace Culture Index. And Kemp, I'm going to get you to talk about the certification process that you offer. But first, we did open the phone lines during the break, so let's include some calls going forward. Bob in Chilliwack, good morning to you. And good morning to you, Sterling. It's good to hear you again oh, after thanks. such a long hiatus I ended up taking. Anyway, um, the American example, a lot of people are leaving what I call chore load work, the dirty fingernail stuff, the, the stuff that is necessary to keep the physiology of our economy intact so all of the upper-level stuff can function. Mm-hmm. So without the basics, that can function. And in the American example, from what I hear in their media, people are leaving not only for wages, but a lot of them are sick and tired of being deemed second-class citizens, even after it's been discovered, how important the function of us mere mortals who get our fingernails dirty for a living, at least I did when I was still healthy, um, add to the equation how important we actually are and what actually collapses when you can't find those base level people. Excellent point, Bob. I appreciate the call very much. Always good to hear from you. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Kemp, at the, the Workplace Culture Index. Comments on Bob's thoughts this morning. No, I think Bob makes a really good point. I think even before COVID, this is something that we saw, um, particularly in Canada and in British Columbia, around uh, fast food restaurants um, and you know fruit and, and farming operations. Um, I think, you know, that's something that, that has, we've seen it become a challenge because we haven't had as many people coming to the country True. Uh, through those, through those work programs. And, um, you know, it, it, I think really ultimately it comes down to, you have to pay people enough so that they'll do the jobs. And I think we have a, we have a challenge in the way our economic model works where we, we might not pay people enough in some roles. Interesting. Jonathan, uh, just uh, further to what Bob was saying, there is a a component of the labor force, again, the work from home crowd, that is absolutely unaffected by that, right? Oh, I don't know that I can say it's unaffected by that. So, you know, there are trade-offs with working from home. Certainly, you know, mental health is an issue. Uh, Some people just do not go for this, this mode of working. It's it's not a universally applicable solution. And by the way, it's as, as I think you would agree, uh, just, you know, whether it's, it's for particular industries or not, some people just uh, will not be able to make that transition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned for, um, you know, being, you know, some, some ex- so-called experts may be 
more optimistic about how this, how quickly this transition can take place, and how fully this transition can take place. I'm I'm concerned about this, uh, Jonathan. Just very very quickly, your your company, the MindMeld PR, does uh, you get a media exposure for tech clients? How much more difficult, if at all, has COVID made your work? Oh, that's that's an excellent question. So, and by the way, I, I want to just uh, you know make sure it's un- understood. This is not a COVID issue. It's a uh, it, it's a government response issue. Mm-hmm. So uh, other countries uh, had different policies. So uh, you know their their evolution in their workforces has uh, been a little bit different. Um, so in in terms of our uh, our response, like. You know, we we suffered like many comp- other companies. That there were a lot of agencies that just went out of business entirely sure. because their you know the the customer base disappeared. Uh, as some uh, positivity and and energy has has come back to the marketplace, uh, we've been able to make a go of it, and we're growing. So the the ones that survived uh, and are working remotely are able to to do the work. Um, it's it's really it's a function of the overall health of the economy. If if the overall health of the economy is is going up, then uh, you know our tech clients uh, have a better time of it, and they have budget to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kemp, I want to talk a little bit about the Workplace Culture Index. Besides operating cultureindex.io, you offer a certification program. Talk to us a little bit about what that involves. Yeah, we do. Our organization believes that exceptional organizational culture enriches the human experience. And so that's where we're coming from. Um, in the marketplace, there's lots of different ways to certify your organization, your workplace. Um, and what we've created is something that allows organizations to derive actionable insight from the feedback of their employees. Um, you know, what we find is the value of data and the numbers isn't so much in the data and the numbers as much as in the analysis and the insights. And then ultimately the actions we take to optimize our business based on those insights. So organizations take uh, 30 minutes of a project manager's time, about five minutes per employee uh, and a small registration fee. And uh, we actually run run through and provide them an executive summary, all kinds of data, reports, actual insights and ultimately a badge that they can put on their website and broadcast to the world their people-first culture. We, uh, in, our, in our company here at Chorus, we have sort of monthly or, or quarterly uh, employee mm-hmm. surveys. Everybody gets a chance to uh, you know, check boxes and, and feedback mm-hmm. uh, to HR and all of that. Do most companies, uh, sizable ones particularly, at least these days, offer that sort of uh, keep a door open for employee feedback? Yeah, most definitely. You you hit the nail on the head. It's all about size and the size of the people and culture or human resource operations at an organization. I think one of the challenges that organizations suffer from is something called uh, lack of action fatigue. And people often talk about survey fatigue, you know, that employees are being asked to fill out surveys all the time. And I think the problem for employees isn't so much, hey, you asked me to fill out a survey that takes me 15 or 20 minutes, you know, instead of five but that I don't see things happening and as a result of being asked to fill out the survey every month or every quarter. Right. And so I think organizations really need to orient their uh, feedback collection and their surveying around, are we going to do something about this for our team? Or are we even going to share the results with them so they can feel like they're a part of this process and their time wasn't wasted? Indeed. Jonathan, retention, not only attracting staff, but retaining them, keeping them on board is going to be an employer challenge for star in the years ahead. Absolutely. So as Kemp mentioned, uh, you know, one factor obviously is how much you can pay your employees. Right. So uh, we all know inflation is going up, so our wages keeping pace, um, but also, you know, all kinds of benefits. But beyond, uh, you know, monetary compensation, I find one of the best ways to retain good people, show appreciation. Uh, make sure that your uh, your people who are doing good work know that they're doing good work. They're appreciated. They're doing meaningful work. Um, and I, I think this has, has sort of come through. Uh, you know, we've seen what's happened with the impact of, of uh, COVID lockdowns to the workforce. I think a lot of people maybe forgot uh, how important a job is to their, uh, uh, you know, identity, uh, to um, how they see themselves, and that people get meaning from work. So uh, the more that you can in- encourage people to you know, not be alienated from their work and to uh, take joy from the work they're doing, be passionate about it, this, these are all good, good ways to help retain 
good employees. And that's the point that Bob made when he called us from Chilliwack 15 minutes ago. You know, it doesn't matter what you do in the company, you're doing something important and that needs to be recognized. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us this morning. Jonathan Narvey and Kemp Edwards, an interesting discussion. You were both terrific guests. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. Okay, check this out. This just happened in the last few days. Rivian Automotive, an electric vehicle company that has so far delivered only about 150 electric pickup trucks, mostly to its own employees, surpassed General Motors Thursday to become the second most valuable U.S. car company behind Tesla. Well, to just try and wrap your head around that and it, the impact of e-vehicles on the marketplace, always a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. We've been on, talking on the radio for a very long time. He is a longtime automotive journalist with the Globe and Mail. He is a three-time Canadian Automotive Journalist of the Year award winner. He is the host of CatoCardGuy.com and the author of Swimming with the Showroom Sharks. Jeremy Cato is back with us. Jeremy, good morning. Hi, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So what about Rivian? You and I have talked about Rivian on the radio. In fact, the last time we were together a few months ago, you mentioned Rivian as the up-and-comer in the play, uh, the the one to keep a watch on. Well, we kind of kept an eye on things. Did you expect this kind of over-the-top response to their IPO a few days ago? I did, and not because I'm a genius, like although I would like to think so, but it's not true. (laughs) Um, uh, the, the stock, it, this is a stock play right now. It's not a real car company, right. it's a stock play, hoping to become a real car company, much as Tesla was a decade ago. It wasn't a real car company. It was another stock play backed by a bunch of investment bankers from Morgan Stanley to Goldman Sachs. Uh, this is a, a perfect example of the disconnect between the real economy where you and I and everybody else goes and buys a car and pays for gas and the stock market economy, which is about projecting what things might be worth in a best-case scenario down the road. So Rivian has an interesting business plan, but as you say, it's, it's you know, for normal middle-class people like you and I, Sterling, it's absurd to think of a company that has sold, you know, a couple of hundred units worth 100 billion U.S. dollars. I know. It's just, it's it's difficult yeah. to wrap your head around, and yet there it is. The numbers don't lie. Bloomberg, <laughs> you know, we're just all over this story. And again, basically, uh, the attraction is, uh, and of course, Amazon and Jeff Bezos. I mean, you talked about the big money behind Tesla that gave it the first push. Well, uh, obviously, Rivian has learned by example, and they've got some big chip players in their corner or two, don't they? Yeah, I, I think what you're looking at is a lot of investors, uh, especially those investment banks, who, you know, that make money by by floating these initial public offerings mm-hmm. and so on. Um, they're 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 selling this as much on the fact that there's the Jeff Bezos Amazon connection as any of the technology that Rivian might have. Sure, and you know, Amazon's a fairly significant uh, retailer and technology company, and online distribution, and cloud company, and all these other things. So I think, um, you know, investors look at this when, when, when a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley comes to market with something like this. They sell it as much on the potential, but also the connections. One other quick point I would make, which I think is a little bit interesting. Uh, initially, Amazon invested about $700 million in, in uh, Rivian. Okay. Ford Motor Company invested $500 million in Rivian. Mm. So, so there's an interesting, you know, Ford has, under its new CEO, Jim Farley, has created a new business plan, basically, which says we're going to become the, the premium American electric, uh, at least a le- legacy electric car company. And that, that Ford connection means that Ford gets access to a lot of the technology and the branding that Rivian is developing, and we'll be using that in its own electrification strategy, and vice versa. Jeremy, you and I have been talking about the onset of electric vehicles for many years now on the radio, and we're at a point uh, where we're we're about to cross another line, I think, just in terms not only of public acceptance, because we're well past that line uh, in terms of the, the concept, the fact that consumers the world over have started to gravitate towards electronic vehicles and so on. But now uh, we're starting to see an awareness at the, com- the consumer level about the uh, there's definitely a green advantage to you 
using electric vehicles. No question about it with the, the elimination of the fossil fuel component. But, and you've written about it at CatoCarGuy.com, it's uh, batteries are where the whole the coal, car, car industry is going down the road. It'll all be uh, propelled by some form of battery power. So it, it, it very much ma- managing your own battery production capabilities is going to really determine for a lot of these car makers, big and small, how successful they are in the, out, uh, uh, in the long run. Yeah, and if you're a North American or even a European car company, this is a scary moment because China is about 10 years ahead of anybody in Europe or North America in terms of of battery production, but also in consolidating the supply chain that makes batteries, things like cobalt and nickel and copper. Uh, You know, these, these are critical elements to battery supply. Well, who has been making huge investments in places where you can find these these minerals, China, mm-hmm. these big China companies. So if you if you were to visit the uh, the Congo the, the, uh, right now, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, you'd see a whole bunch of Chinese uh, people there working with the local Congolese representatives to develop their mining capability there. This is this is a big issue. And then of course the technology. China has invested as a country more than a hundred billion dollars in supporting its electrification program. Right. So. The, the, the China, the Chinese government believes that this will allow them to leapfrog the established Western um, capitalist countries like the United States and Britain and Canada. So what about Rivian, for example? Here's a brand new player on the field. They're going to be a battery-powered electric vehicle. Their first pickup truck is due this month, their first SUV before Christmas. Where are they getting their batteries from? Well, they, they get it from... Every, we're the same place every night. And I believe Rivian is using Panasonic batteries, although I need to check. Okay. But again, all that technology is essentially coming out of either Korea, South Korea, or China right now. Now, um, if, you, if you've followed the Biden infrastructure um, bill that went through, which has a huge, I think there's about $150 billion there mm-hmm. on the electrification side out of a trillion-dollar um, bill. Which I think he's signing that this morning, as a matter of fact. Um, the idea, the Biden administration has clearly recognized that um, they're way behind, and the and a competitive advantage they're, they're, they have surrendered over the last decade a competitive advantage to the to the Chinese, and it's it's scary. The Americans have never really trailed anybody in technology in my lifetime, in your lifetime too. Sure. Um, so this is a very, very frightening moment for the Americans and if, if, uh, and, and for us in Canada as well, because, of course, our economy and our way of life is really tied to uh, the success of the American economy. So where, where this, where companies like General Motors, for example, have announced that they're going to be building, I believe, three battery plants in the United States right. with their South Korean partner. Um, but these things take time. These takes years to come along, and you you can you can have a plant all you want if you don't have nickel and cobalt and copper and all these other minerals that go into a battery, lithium. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to have anything to make. So you you can expect. Uh, well, let me just step back. In Canada, we do have pretty large resources of copper and nickel. Um, and so we have a chance to uh, be a player here from our traditional base of being, you know, the drawers, wo- drawers of right. wood and rocks and trees, you know, rocks dr- and trees. That's yes. right. <laughs> so that's that's an opportunity uh, for us. And I know, for example, Tesla, and I don't know if they've signed the deal yet, but had been looking at a major nickel producer in British Columbia uh, who has the, uh, the reputation for having the most environmentally friendly nickel production of any nickel producer in the world. So, so there's an opportunity there for British Columbia. Interesting. And for Canadian investors, also these mineral companies that offer potential, uh, given the fact that the the transportation world, not just automotive, but the transportation world is going electric, therefore it's going to need all of those battery components. Canada, we're not the Congo, but we do have a significant stash of resources in this company. And Canadian investors, Jeremy, and you've met, you've talked about this again for years, taking advantage of what's coming, being far enough out to be able to buy into some of these uh, enterprises at a really reasonable dollar. I'd also throw in there, uh, uh, in, here in British Columbia in particular, and in the horseshoe in southern Ontario, the high-tech horseshoe, we have pretty strong software engineering capabilities. Rivian has um, a couple of hundred engineers working in Yaletown right now. Wow. Right in the old mini store down there in Yaletown. Okay. That's now, 
that is now a Rivian facility where the and and where a couple hundred software engineers trained, working and paid here in British Columbia are working to develop all of the infotainment systems, the you know all that cloud stuff that every car must have now. So. Our high-tech capability here in British Columbia is not to be underestimated, you know, the, and some of that has been driven through the film industry and all the graphics and high-tech technology that goes into making modern movies. So aside from pulling minerals out of the ground, we do have an opportunity to expand uh, our, our uh, footprint on the high-tech side, which is also very promising, especially if you actually live in the city of Vancouver. Yeah. Sterling Fox with you on this Saturday morning, 7 degrees in downtown Vancouver. Our guest is Jeremy Cato, the author of Swimming with the Showroom Sharks, an insider's guide on how to save 5000 bucks or more on your next new vehicle. You can download it for free at his website, CatoCarGuy.com. And on your website, Jeremy, you've got a fascinating story of Elon Musk versus Mr. Toyota, the grandson of the founder of the Toyota uh, car company, which up until a very short while ago wasn't a particularly e-vehicle oriented organization and they've had a massive change of heart tell us more yes it's it's you know the the auto industry unlike uh, a lot of other businesses is as much about the personalities at the top of car companies as anything so for example Akio Toyota is the grandson of the founder of Toyota. Elon Musk, of course, is one of the founders of Tesla. The, the, uh, it is a family uh, that controls BMW and so on and so forth. So um, these two guys um, have been sparring for years for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is Toyota, had, for the longest time, didn't think that there was any possibility that um, pure battery electric vehicles would become mainstream. Right. And, in fact, they, uh, Toyota was an initial investor in Tesla way back a decade ago and sold those shares in 2016 because uh, Mr. Toyota and his uh, leadership team felt that they were focusing too much on pure battery electric and not enough on hybrid. Well, I love this piece because this this gets to the heart of why this is kind of a personal battle. Um, Toyota sold those shares for about $40 a share. Um, today, Tesla's trading at more than $1,000. That's right. So, yeah, so... If, if Toyota owned those shares today, what they sold for about $90 million would be worth $2.3 billion. Yeah. So if you're a big shot, you know, running a company, and you pulled the trigger on a sale that worked out so badly, you might feel a little troubled by that. And the second piece, of course, is that Toyota really has felt for years that uh, with the launch of the Prius and, and the refinement of its hybrid technology, that that was the future. And uh, Toyota's been proven wrong. So now Toyota's got a huge plan to launch uh, 15 electric vehicles by 2025 expanding so the the world has changed for toyota it's a real about face and you don't see toyota do that very often not so publicly and is toyota planning on the all of these new evs powered by toyota made batteries or are they going to subcontract that to file Uh, at the for the time being it's subcontracted but toyota likes to be a vertically integrated company and uh, is working uh, to, to develop that capability itself. But again, you know, these capabilities have been developed ca- battery technology very carefully by Chinese and South Korean companies uh, over, you know, more than a decade. So it's catch-up time. The irony there, of course, is that for most of the history of the Korea- South Korean auto industry, it's been a case of do whatever Toyota does and try and do it better. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in the history of the auto industry in South Korea. Now Toyota's looking to South Korea for help. Aha! The old shoe yeah. on the other foot scenario. <laughs> things change. Things change, right? Uh, Justin Trudeau is going to meet with uh, Joe Biden and the president of Mexico in a couple of days down at the White House. And this is definitely going to impact the Canadian and Mexican auto sector. Both Mexico and Canada make a lot of cars and car parts. And Joe Biden's got this new bill, Jeremy, which is uh, heavily leaning towards buy American. And buy American means buying products that have X, I think, 50 percent American content in them. And if some vehicles composed of parts from both Mexico and Canada add up to more than 50%, those vehicles will not be encouraged to be purchased by by Americans. This would or could impact the Canadian auto sector. 
Yes, I mean, consider uh, it was just last, late last year during the, some of the worst times of the pandemic when Ford Motor announced that it would be um, turning its Oakville assembly plant into a major battery, uh, not battery, uh, electric uh, vehicle production That's right, facility. Yeah. And that, that was before Biden was even elected president. Um, so it sounds like what the Biden administration is doing contravenes uh, the new version of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, we'll have to see how that all plays out. But remember, you know, Joe Biden was elected uh, significantly by, um, you know, the help of labor unions, which want those jobs in the United States in particular. Mm-hmm. However, the flip side of that is 35, I think it's 35 or 37 U.S. states uh, have been made clear during the negotiations to them uh, that their number one trading partner is Canada. Um, they will be pushing back against the Biden administration to, to, in any efforts to slap tariffs on Canadian products because we do some, they do so much trade individually sure. with, with Canada. So this, this has the makings of a really interesting uh, fight once these, uh, once President Biden signs this into law this morning. Indeed. Uh, Jeremy, very quickly, uh, you mentioned hybrids in the, in the Toyota reference about how they were counting on hybrids being more dominant than all electric vehicles. Is that the, the outcome essentially already in place, that the hybrid vehicle was uh, perhaps a necessary step in terms of the evolution of the car, but ultimately hybrids will give way to all electric vehicles? Uh, I, I think eventually that is definitely going to happen. But the, the, good, the good news for the industry and for consumers uh, about the you know, Toyota Pioneer, the, the mainstream hybrid vehicle, of course, uh, is that a lot of the technology that goes into a hybrid also goes into a pure battery electric vehicle, the electric motors mm-hmm. um, or, or the software engineering to get to, you know, these components to work. Uh, and and the understanding of the benefits of electrification, things like you never, you almost never wear out your brakes because the battery, the, the electric motors are slowing your car down mm-hmm. most of the time through regenerative braking. You don't need to change oil. There is no oil to change in an electric vehicle. The, the cooling system, while elaborate, is not as problematic as it is with a uh, internal combustion engine vehicle. So the, some of the lessons learned in the as we as Toyota rolled out and others followed the hybrid vehicles can now be applied to pure battery electric vehicles and that is the future but it's not going to happen overnight is it we need charging stations europe has almost 240,000 uh, battery charging stations for vehicles across europe um, we, we're nowhere near that in the United States. Although I would say British Columbia is a, is a place that's catching up quickly because this government is particularly bent on it. 10% of the sales of vehicles in British Columbia now are battery electric vehicles. Right. 10%. Yeah, that's pretty good. And of course, that makes that's you happy. You've been, you've been on the electric vehicle bandwagon for a very long time. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, Jeremy. Thanks again for joining us this morning. It's always fun. Stay well. Stay well. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.